You may be seated. I could just simply give the benediction now because in the last two hymns that we uh, lifted up in song, we basically covered uh, the message this morning, but um, I will not disappoint you. So we will now look at God's word in, in particular. And after a brief break, we're returning today to the sermon series uh, that has been our sermon series for a number of weeks now, looking at the dynamics of the Christian life according to the scriptures following the storyline of John Bunyan's classic Christian work, The Pilgrim's uh, Progress. And thus far, we have observed Christian becoming aware of his burden of sin, leaving his, his home, coming under conviction of sin, making a few errors along the way by trying to deal with his burden in an unbiblical and uh, false gospel sort of way. He finally made it to the wicked gate and gained entrance there, literally being dragged in or brought in by the keeper of the gate. And he made it to the house of interpreter where he, was, he greatly benefited from the illuminating work of the man that he found there. And then as we come to our topic uh, today, the atonement, we find the interpreter sending Christian to continue his journey with these words. The comforter be always with thee, good Christian, to guide thee in the way that leads to the city. And for today, we'll be looking at that way that leads to the cross and to the sepulcher, the empty tomb. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis in his autobiography, Surprised by joy, C.S. Lewis said this about himself, that he was the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England, drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. Now, Lewis is describing his experience of being resistant to God as God pursued him before C.S. Lewis realized what God was up to. Before he understood the depth of his depravity, his sin, and his need for help, his need for a savior. And maybe that describes your experience early on as God began to press in on you so that you might see your sin and see your need for Jesus. But here's the good news. Whatever resistance there might be early on in the whole process of God working to redeem a sinner, at some point that resistance melts away completely and that sinner becomes a burden sinner who sees his sin and who turns in repentance from it and turns to Christ in faith and I would say that when one truly sees his or her sin and turns from it in repentance we don't merely just take a little leisurely stroll to Jesus. No, we run to him in faith. We run like a person escaping a burning building to find rescue. 
Bunyan writes, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. What would a burdened sinner who has turned from his sin in repentance and has run to Jesus in faith, why would a burdened sinner do that? And today we'll consider the first of three answers to that question as we look at what happens to Christian as he comes to the cross and to that sepulcher below the cross. And I think the hymn that we just sang, that Charles Wesley wrote, helps us understand the, the first reason why a burdened sinner would turn from sin and repentance and run to Jesus in faith. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, we sang, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, that Jesus, you should die for someone like me? But he did. And when we come to see that Jesus died for sinners, and he died for me, a sinner, we don't just take a leisurely stroll on the way of salvation. We run to Jesus because Jesus atones for all our sin and sets us free from its guilt. This is what we will be looking at today for the crucifixion and the resurrection in that work Christ has accomplished atonement for you and for me. Let us go to him in prayer. God our Father, we do ask for your grace and your mercy as we come to reason together from the scriptures this most profound doctrinal point of the atonement. Guide us, direct us. May this, what we call the doctrine of the atonement, be not just simply a matter, an exercise of knowledge, but Lord, may it fill our hearts and give us even more desire to rely upon Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So today we're really looking at the meaning of the atonement. And you'll find a sermon outline on page six that we'll look at the meaning of the atonement. We're looking at four things. First of all, the atonement is about sacrifice. Secondly, it's about propitiation. Thirdly, it's about a substitution. And lastly, it is about reconciliation. So I'd encourage you to take notes on your sermon outline. So first, the atonement means sacrifice. The Bible teaches 
that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And you may recall in Leviticus 16 that describes the Day of Atonement that the high priest would not only on an annual basis atone for his sin by the slaughter of an animal and the shedding of blood, but he would also atone for the sins of the people by the same shedding of the blood of a sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews shows us that Christ's priestly work not only fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system, but is superior to it in every way. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. He, that is Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And what is really unique about the priestly work of Jesus Christ is that he is not only that great high priest who, who stands between the sinner and God and is the mediator, he is the victim as well. He is the sacrifice himself. John writes in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Isaiah 43.25 I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Do you remember your sins? There, there are some sins I'm not even aware of. There are some sins I don't remember, but I remember a whole lot of my sins. But God forgives and he remembers our sins no more. I can't factor that in my mind. I even remember some of your sins. Think about it. And I bet you remember some of my sins. Thank God that he's not like us. <laughs> that he's a forgiving God. He's a God of grace. At the cross in the sepulcher, Christian finds relief from that Burden. It rolled off his back and rolled down a little hill right into the mouth of that empty tomb and it never came back. Do you get that? That burden never came back to be a hindrance between the sinner's relationship with holy God. It's a beautiful picture of the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection to deal with our sin, to conquer sin and death to such an extent that our sin no longer gets but in the middle of our relationship with God. It's, the guilt is dealt with. Listen to Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And in Leviticus 16, 21 through 22, on the day of atonement, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat 
and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their tra transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness and that goat will never return. Do you get the picture? How effective Jesus' death and resurrection is to deal with our sin so that it does not come between us and God ever again. Hallelujah. Christ paid in full the debt of my sins, thus removing the guilt. That's in theological terms called expiation. He removes the guilt. He wipes it away. And it will never come between God and me again. In him, says Paul in Ephesians, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace. But second, the atonement is about not only about expiation, the removal, the wiping away of, of that guilt, but it's about propitiation. It is penal. There is a penalty that adjoins guilt and our sin. Now, propitiation includes all that we said above in about expiation, but it's more than that. Propitiation is this, that G by Jesus' death, he averts the wrath of God from us onto himself. I mean, by nature, we're all objects of wrath. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 2, Romans 1. God is rightly angry towards sin. And his justice demands satisfaction that, someone pay, that, that his penalty be executed, his wrath be poured out on the sinner as a just penalty. And yet we find in the atonement it's penal because Christ Jesus took our covenant-breaking penalty upon himself. And it never touches us. Think about that for just a moment. The very wrath that we deserve never touches us. Jesus is so efficient, so sufficient in propitiation that he absorbs every single ounce of the penalty so that it never, ever will touch the believer. That is absolutely incredible. Paul points to this. Paul points to the penal, the, the propitious aspect of the atonement in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Thus, Christ is the one who rescues us from the wrath of God. And listen to this in Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come. 
The great uh, Bible scholar J.I. Packer writes this, the driving force in Jesus's life was to resolve to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the unique dreadfulness of his death lies in the fact that he tasted on Calvary the wrath of God, which was our due, so making propitiation for our sins. Jesus taking our punishment was the driving force in his life. Christ not only shed his blood to wipe away our guilt, he shed his blood to take the penalty of covenant breaking that we rightly deserved. He suffered God's wrath so that we will never, ever suffer one bit of it. Many of you have read Romans 8. How does Romans 8 begin? There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation because of the atonement. And third, the atonement means substitution. Sinners cannot atone for their own sin. Only a perfect sacrifice, a spotless sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice. Christ is the only one who will do. He's the only perfect sacrifice there is. And so we need to, if, if our sin is going to be forgiven, we need a substitute. We, we need a qualified sacrifice, and that was Jesus. And he is the one who takes our place on the cross. And Brandon read of this in Isaiah 52 and 53. I'll just reread verses 4 through 6. Surely he, that is pointing to Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the substitutionary aspect to the atonement in this Old Testament foreshadowing of the work of Christ on the cross for you and for me? And Peter writes, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. And then, then we, we read in Mark 10, 45, this, this one verse that so beautifully depicts the mission of Jesus Christ. For even the Son of Man, Jesus said, of himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we must not read Mark 10, 45 in isolation from our experience. He came to be a ransom for you and for me. And every sinner who is numbered among his people Christ removed, he expiated the guilt of our sin. Christ suffered the wrath that we deserve. And Christ was our substitute on the cross. He took our place. 
He accomplishes for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. He has atoned for our sin. And then fourthly, the atonement means reconciliation. In the atonement, we find that God's attitude towards sinners changes. Where previously, because of our sin and our rebellion, we were enemies. But now we see, because of Jesus' atoning death, that the hostilities that existed because of our sin have been killed. And that we have been reconciled to God, no longer at enmity with God. And this killing of the hostility and this, and this reconciliation with God is, is seen in the next two passages of Scripture that I will read. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In Genesis 3.15, we read that because of the fall, there was now enmity between God and man. And Jesus Christ, in the atonement, reverses that and kills the enmity. And now I'm able to have a right and loving relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in Christ. And in the second passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Not only has the hostility, the enmity been killed and dealt with, but also we have been reconciled. We are no longer enemies and slaves. We are sons and daughters of the king. Forever. That's reconciliation. That's atonement. That's what Jesus has done for you and me. At the cross and the sepulcher, Christian rejoice over what happened to him in this accomplished atonement. And he hath given me rest by his sorrow, says Christian and life by his death. And then as Christian in Pilgrim's Progress was there at the cross and the sepulcher, three shining ones come to him and each one makes a declaration. The first one, which is the declaration that we're looking at today, made this declaration to Christian, thy sins are forgiven. Christ has made atonement for your sin on the cross and in the resurrection. My sin, we sang, all oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Why? Christ 
bore it on the cross. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. The burdened sinner is not dragged to Jesus kicking and screaming. We may kick and scream at some point early on in God working his mysterious grace in our lives in the process of convicting us of sin. But the burdened sinner who sees his sin, the burdened sinner who is turning from his sin in repentance and who is running to Jesus Christ in faith is not dragged. He runs for there at the cross and there at the sepulcher, the empty tomb, there is full pardon. Have you run to Jesus by turning from your sin and repentance and running full speed to him in faith? For all who turn and run, there is full pardon, not for part of our sin, but praise God for the whole. Let us pray. Father, we stand amazed at, at the measure of your grace for us. We stand amazed at the atonement that it is sacrifice, it is expiation, it is propitiation you've taken You've not only wiped away our guilt, but you've taken the wrath that we deserve. It's substitution in that you truly did take our place and you did what we could never ever do. And what you did was to reconcile us to God and to one another. Oh, Father, I pray that, that we would continually turn from sin in repentance and run to Jesus in faith. For there and there only is full pardon in Jesus' name. Amen. Well,